Hi, and welcome to Divorce Hacker. I'm your host, Dan Grant. On this show, we'll have a variety of guests who've been through divorce and are experts on the topic. Whether you're thinking about a divorce, in the midst of it, or already divorced, we are here to share our stories with you in the hope that you may relate, learn, process, and overcome whatever you're experiencing in your life. Welcome to another episode of Divorce Hacker. Today, I have Teresa Wilcox, who is an expert and works with those affected by abuse, trauma, and less than ideal relationships. Teresa is a licensed marriage and family therapist and has a very successful private practice in Southern California. She's also the founder of the Healing Center for Trauma and Relationships, which provides quality care for clients and mentored experience and training for therapists. She is an adjunct professor at the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Hope International University and she is also trained in the Gottman Method for couples therapy. Teresa is currently obtaining her doctorate in marriage and family therapy. Teresa, you're a busy gal. Yes, thank you, I am. <laughs> We're so excited to have you today on our show. Thank you. We have so many questions that we wanna to talk to you about and that our guests are interested in getting your perspective on. So one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about is there's been this notion floating around since, well, at least the 70s, that the children of a divorce are from a broken home and that they're broken. Mm -hmm. um, so what are your thoughts about that? What did the newer studies show? You know, I think a lot of that research is embedded in the time it came out, right? So you even think about um, women's ability to have careers and income. And so a lot of that research is really housed in this optimal representation of what families are, right? So in an optimal family, you're going to have two parents that love the kids who provide a stable, um, great example of like loving care and partnership. And who doesn't want that? Of course, kids are going to thrive in that environment. When you get less than that optimal, that's where things start to break down. So if we sort of villainize divorce and say, oh, well, you know, th th that's what made people unhappy. That's what made parents adversaries. That's what created hostility in a relationship. Then that becomes the, the root of that, you know, what you might find later in kids' unhappiness. I don't know that that's a really fair representation. And so a lot of the research that's coming out is saying, hey, if you deviate from what is optimal from kids, it, it's going to have a negative impact, right? And so what deviates from optimal? Well, that could be a really unhealthy relationship. You know, kids who are growing up in a violent or scary home, and that's not healthy either. So staying married because I think that that somehow is creating a protective factor for my kids may or may not be accurate given the situation that the kids are in. We learned a lot about this in COVID. Right now, everybody's home, everybody's spending all this time together, and we think that that's optimal. But for a lot of our kids, it wasn't optimal. And for some adults, it wasn't optimal either. If it's not a safe environment, if it's not an environment that is uh, focused on harmony or focused on having good relationships and um, 
considering everyone's needs, then this becomes less than optimal. And I think, you know, a lot of the data is showing that, hey, if you want to be a good parent, you should do these things. If you want to be a good partner, you should do these things. And when we deviate from that, there are negative consequences. You know, um, there was a study that came out a few years ago that I thought was interesting that found that um, certainly um, we're all aware that when there's domestic violence or a lot of anger in a household, that obviously is impactful in a negative way on children. But this study also concluded that cold and contemptuous relationships can be equally adversely um, right. adversely affect children. And in my practice, I am, well, I used to be astonished, I'm not anymore, but I often find when people come to me and they're looking to get a divorce, um, they and their spouses have been living separate lives for many, many years, sleeping in separate beds and separate bedrooms, living their separate lives. And to your point about COVID, I think what I observed is when they were thrown back together, particularly those situations where they were living their separate lives, that then um, created a tremendous amount of dissonance that led them to my office. Right. Is that something that, that you've also observed? COVID has taught us so much um, and we're still learning, right? So I think that, you know, in working with, and I have a long history of working with kids, it is difficult to be your best self all the time. And so I think when we are, you know, trying to figure out what's happening in our adult world, whether that's um, an unhappy marriage or an unhappy work life or whatever, and we begin to disconnect from our kids, that that's not good for our kids, right? So we have these two parallel things going on. We have what's happening for parents in the adult world, in, in their lives and making adult decisions. And then we have our kids and our kids' needs. And so I don't know if I'm answering the question quite <laughs> as clearly as you want, but when we disengage from our kids, that creates a standard or that creates, you know, a dance and our kids then learn that we're not available for them. Well, depending on the age of your kids, the developmental, you know, um, place that they're at, they are going to interpret that in a certain way. Um, if they're older, they might interpret that as, well, you know, mom or dad is having a really bad day and I can give them some slack or I understand that work is super stressful. So I'm going to give them, a, you know, some grace. But when our kids are little, they, they don't really have that ability to do that. Right. So kids, especially younger kids, will often internalize that, think that it's maybe their fault, wonder what they did. I mean, they're thinking as a six-year-old would think. They're thinking as a 10-year-old would think. And they're interpreting that coldness to how they see the world. And so what we don't want to do is have that long-standing disconnect, that long-standing coldness, because then kids translate that into the world. The world maybe is a cold place. Maybe nobody really cares about me. Maybe nobody really loves me, right? So it is these um, you know, one-off situations our kids can handle. But when that becomes the norm, kids will interpret that in a certain way. And so if we're not careful, our kids are going to internalize that and interpret that. And that's going to create what they believe the world looks like, right? Naturally, that translates out into the world. Our home is really where we develop our sense of self and our, our sense of what the world is like. So imagine for our kids, if there is, you know, chaos or if there is 
um, things that are, again, less than optimal consistently, then our kids interpret that as this is how the world operates. And that, you know, can lead to a, a variety of problems down the line. That's a great. Thank you so much for all of that. That's so helpful. What do you recommend or what are some specific things that parents can do to role model for children how to process negative emotions that will come up, particularly during divorce, like sadness, anger, frustration? Do you have some ideas about that? Yeah. And here's, you know, here's the hopeful piece, right? We just talked about a lot of <laughs> depressing things, right? Oh, gosh, what if I'm in a situation where I've been checked out for a while and I don't want to be that way? Kids are really resilient. We're really resilient, right? So every, every challenge presents an opportunity for change. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter what happened yesterday. I mean, it matters, but the hopeful piece is that, okay, what do I want to do about it today? What do I want to do to correct that? What do I want to do to even repair that, right? So a lot of times we talk about, we think about repair in our adult relationships, but we need to think about repair with our kids too. And as parents, if I made a mistake to say, hey, I made a mistake, I'm so sorry, I was busy, I was distracted and I yelled at you yesterday, I'm so sorry. How are you doing today? Can we talk about that today? So I, I think sometimes parents feel like if I admit that I was wrong, that that's bad. Our kids need us to admit when we're wrong. We're human beings, we're gonna make mistakes. And in fact, good parenting isn't about being perfect. It's about trying, it's about repairing, and it's about learning how to do it better. That's good parenting. And our, our kids, when we do that, give us a whole lot of grace. So for parents who are like, okay, I, I think I need to do a better job. I would like to do a better job, um, regardless of who you are. You know, I look at my kids periodically and I think, oh, maybe I dropped the ball on that. I need to do a better job. What can I do differently? And so for, for parents who are in this mindset of growth, right? Okay, what can I do? I think it's important to acknowledge feelings. Sometimes we get in the habit of fixing feelings. You know, I don't want my kids to feel bad. I, I would love to fix that for them. That's not necessarily what they need from us, from parents. They need acknowledgement. They need us to be able to say, you're feeling that way. Okay, let's talk about it. I can tolerate that. You're not in a good space. Okay, I can be with you in that space. Tell me more about that. Get curious about what's happening for your kids, right? I think it's hard as a parent, and I can relate. I have three kids. If somebody's struggling with something, you know, especially as a therapist, I kick into like, okay, well, you need this, 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 and this. That's not what they need from me. They need me to stop and listen and give them the space to express themselves. And then sometimes, depending on the age, collaboratively work. Do you want a tool? Do you want a way to help that? Or do you just want me to know that that's how you're feeling right now and that that's okay. Sometimes that's all they need is just to know that that's okay and I can tolerate that and you can be angry, you can be upset. It's okay. I love that. Yeah. What about when, I'm thinking back to when I was going through my own divorce, there were times when I was feeling overwhelmed, angry, frustrated, and sad. And I sort of had it in my head to have keep my feelings invisible mm -hmm. and shield my children from, or at least try to shield them from what I was experiencing and keep it under the radar. Yeah. Do you think it's helpful for them to know 
that we as adults experience those things and to share that with him, them? Or is it better to protect them from what we're experiencing? I love the words you used, right? You wanted to shield them. You wanted to protect them. I mean, usually I, I give parents the benefit of the doubt, you know, no matter what's going on, if I'm hurting, I'm probably going to hurt people. Um, but usually parents really do want to shield, want to protect, you know, they have this idea that how do I make it better for my kid? And so, you know, sometimes we will in, in wanting to shield, not share that. The danger of that is then the kids think, well, I always have to have it together. Look, mom always has it together. Mom doesn't ever get upset. Um, sometimes they can get upset with us for not getting upset, right? So I think it is it is good to show your kids, hey, I'm sad too, or I'm frustrated too. Naming feelings is how kids learn how to name feelings. They see we mirror for them, and we also you know provide an example of what this looks like. If I never use the words frustrated, um, if I never use words other than sad, mad, angry. My kid is going to grow up really with only that vocabulary, sad, mad, and angry. I have to show them, right? I'm feeling this. It's called this. This is what this looks like. I'm devastated right now. I'm super frustrated right now. I'm overwhelmed right now. This is what this looks like. And you're not responsible for my feelings. I am. So it's important that I share, hey, I'm feeling really overwhelmed today. Today is a really uh, hard day for mom. And um, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to do some things to take care of myself. You know what I like to do when I'm overwhelmed? You know, I, I know you talk about meditation and I'm going to go have some quiet time and I'm going to go meditate. I'm going to go, you know, sit and maybe um, be in prayer. I'm going to go for a walk on the beach. I'm going to go do these things because I am overwhelmed. And here's what I'm doing to manage that, right? Not only then our kids learn that we're human, and we have feelings and it's okay to have feelings, but they also see us modeling maybe healthy ways to deal with those feelings. So it gives them some idea of, oh, when I'm overwhelmed, maybe I might try this thing that works for mom. Or maybe I might ask my friend, hey, do you ever get overwhelmed? What do you do? Oh, you know, when homework is too much, what do you do? So if we can model that and give them the vocabulary to express themselves, then they can start to get tools and, and have those more honest conversations. Divorce Hackers Survive to Thrive is brought to you by Manhattan Beach Family Law. We are your go-to divorce firm specializing in resolution of high net worth disillusions, high conflict divorces, and complex custody matters. As women operating a leading Southern California law firm, we stand out from the rest by bringing compassionate, concierge support to our clients. Through our comprehensive and personalized approach to family law, our purpose is to help you go from surviving to thriving. Thank you for listening and please enjoy the rest of the show. I love that. I love that the idea of modeling good behavior. Yes. And I think it's important to, as mothers and fathers, to remember that. I mean, our children, more than what we tell them, what we model for them right. often is what they end up right. modeling themselves as young adults. And we see that a lot. We cannot not communicate. Right. We're communicating all the time. And sometimes we use words, but the majority of that time we are communicating through what we do, what we say, what our character is. 
and our kids are watching, our kids are observing, and, and all of that is, is the sum total of that is more than just our words. So I think, you know, oftentimes we say things that we want our kids to do, but then we're not modeling that and we're not following through with that, right? If we say it's okay to be sad, but we never allow ourselves to be sad, we're, we're saying it's okay and we're not doing it and our kids are picking up on that and our kids are, are learning that, oh, well, maybe it's, it's okay, but it's not okay. I don't know really what to do with this now. Right. Yeah. So Teresa, if someone wants to stay married after learning that their spouse was unfaithful, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure you come across this in your practice. Yeah. How do you work with them and what advice do you provide? Right. This is such a great question because we don't, I think we don't like to talk about this, even though it is very, very common. Um, I think a lot of people believe that I know I believe going into my marriage, right? Like there's these lines in the sand. And if you cross the line in the sand, this is over. Once you've built a life together, that that's really difficult. It's not always that clean. And we don't really know what we can tolerate until we're, we're in that moment. When people come in and they're forthcoming that there was infidelity, right? There, there are lots of risk factors that I want to look for. Uh, was this a one-time thing? You know, tell me about what was going on before the infidelity, after the infidelity. But let's say, given given the situation, you know, a couple comes in and and they are both wanting to stay married despite the infidelity. Um, the good news is is that this is not doesn't have to be a deal breaker. But both parties need to really want to work through that, right? My perspective is that infidelity is a symptom of something else going on. Infidelity doesn't just happen like, oops, you know, I fell and I landed into this person. It doesn't happen that way, right? There are things that are going on that put us in a bad space, in a, in a, you know, in a maybe vulnerable space, in a vulnerable time. What led up to that? Are there good boundaries in, in the marriage? Are, are each person's needs getting met, right? So there are a lot of things that we're going to look for. And then my, my really, my goal is whatever the client's goal is. If the client says, we want to save the marriage, okay, there are some things that we know that are going to help you stay married and have more clear boundaries. You know, is this a marriage where infidelity is not going to be a part of it? Or is this a marriage where it is, right? I'm not going to make that call. You need to make that call. So one of the things I like to do is help couples get very clear about, you know, as if you were negotiating in a business, like what are the terms here? Are we both okay with that? What I look for is, are we really both okay with that? Sometimes I think people will be unclear on a boundary because they feel that's the only way to stay in the marriage. And so that's a big red flag. If that's happening, then, okay, we need to be a little bit more honest about what we're willing to negotiate and what we're not. So it is a matter of being very clear in the relationship, establishing much clearer Voca- you know, communication, language, vocabulary around what's okay, what's not okay, what we're going to do. Um, you mentioned, you know, Gottman's method. He really talks about the the fun- fundamentally in relationships, we need three things. We need trust, we need commitment, and we need friendship. Infidelity attacks all of those things. So we now have to repair those real foundational uh, structures of the relationship for the relationship to, to move on. If we can do that, I mean, the hopeful piece, I've seen couples come in for infidelity and not that they would wish this on anyone, but literally say, 
that was the best thing that ever happened to us because now we have the kind of relationship we always wanted. Mm-hmm. We were really, this provided an opportunity of growth that we were in before. So things were spiraling out, you know, getting worse, not what they wanted, but they didn't really have the tools to fix it. And now, you know, a lot oftentimes that will bring people into couples therapy. And through that, it gives couples tools to really redefine and have better boundaries and then set up the kind of relationships they really want. And and that can be a beautiful thing. So again, any crisis in life is an opportunity. So it's an opportunity for growth and you're going to do that together. You're going to do that separate, but you're going to do that and, and be intentional about what you want that to look like because it is an opportunity for growth. I love that. What a great way to look at it. So do you have any tips for women in particular that are divorcing narcissists? Okay. It's, it's an area that's sort of a hot button area. I represent a lot of women in this situation. And it, it's, you know, the, the normal tools that most of us have learned, which is to be communicative and right. solve the, you know, work the problem. In my experience, and I'm not trained like you are, but I do deal with this quite a bit. It doesn't, it's not effective. Do you have any specific tools that, that people should yeah. take into consideration? You know, I think that you hit a lot of good points in your book about this. And, and I was sort of looking through all that. One of the things I think a good place to start is to remember that, you know, you make a point, we used to be on the same team and now we're not, right? And so regardless of what your spouse is dealing with, if there are mental health issues, if there are personality disorders, if there's traits, I think fundamentally for people getting divorced, and here's where, you know, there's there's a big flip between what I do and what you do. When people come in for marriage counseling, I'm like, you are on the same team. You have to give each other the benefit of the doubt, right? Like it's still the best from your partner. And then there's a decision to get a divorce. And it's like, oh, wait, stop. Hard turn. We're not on the same team anymore. We might be on the same team for parenting. We might be able to negotiate and do that. But we're actually, you know, now going to go start our own thing, right? So, uh, you know, the analogy of dissolving a business, right? I love your analogy of untying the knot. We're dissolving this. We're each going to do something different. We can work well together as co-parents. We can also, we, we can, you know, best case scenario, support each other, wish each other well on this next chapter, but we're not necessarily on the same team anymore. And so I think what, what is really devastating, what I see in my practice is, especially people who have been to marriage counseling for a long time, we've systematically drilled in their heads that you need to be on the same team. You need to expect the best. You need to be in a positive perspective, right? And and this could potentially put someone at a disadvantage when they're at the stage of undoing and untying um, a lifetime together. So I think if you're dealing with um, a high conflict divorce, if you're dealing with somebody that you think has some personality issues or some mental health issues, right? Some personality traits, it is important to get really wise counsel. It is important to think about um, the strategy of your divorce is different from how I see the world and how I see people and how I see relationships. Um, I have a lot of clients that come in and are devastated because they feel so personally attacked by what their partner is doing through the divorce. And one of my clients said it best. She's like, I finally realized that this is a game. 
Divorce is a game. I have to have strategy. I have to do things differently. Okay, you're right. This is. We want to externalize the divorce from who you are as a person. Who I am as a person and what I believe about other human beings might be very optimistic, but that might not serve me well in my divorce. So, you know, you're making a lot of decisions that are going to affect you and your kids for a long time. So it, it is really helpful to externalize the divorce as this, this thing that we're doing, um, whether you call it a game, a strategy, whatever is helpful for the person, that is a different entity than who you are. And what your partner, ex-partner, ex-spouse you know, is doing right now is different from your relationship you had with that person. They are now playing the same game that you're playing. And usually they're playing to win. And usually that has some consequences to it. That is really hard to manage on a feeling state. That is devastating. And that sends a lot of people um, for a real you know, loop. And so where I see people coming in sort of post-divorce or in the process, or even considering if that if this is something we're going to do or we're going to save our marriage, it is that sort of existential crisis, if you will, of now I'm dealing with two different things. My, I am not trying to save a marriage. I am, I am untying that and I need to deal with that and, and how those steps work in a systematic way. And then I also need to manage my own feelings and who I am, who I see the world as. I mean, this is really a huge, huge loss in our lives. I maybe envisioned a future with this person that I'm losing. I'm losing maybe my best friend. I'm, I'm losing family. I'm losing my way of life. I might be losing financially. I might be losing a home. There is so much loss that comes into that, that all of that needs to be worked out separately so that when you can come to a meeting about the divorce, all of that is not driving your decision-making. And that, that's so painful and hard to do. So you're an expert on trauma. This is an area that you focused on a lot. And many of the women that I work with who are divorcing narcissists, they're like battered women. Um, they have difficulty thinking for themselves. Mm -hmm. They uh, easily become overwhelmed. Um, they're not good decision makers. Right. They often will either go, I find in here, fight and flight, but a lot of times they freeze. Right. Um, and then it makes it very difficult for me to work with them because as you mentioned, what right. I'm trying to do and what I do do yeah. is I'm looking at the divorce, like the disillusion of a business partnership. Right. We're dividing assets. Mm -hmm. If there's debt, we're dividing debt. Right. Um, we're figuring out support. We're hopefully working on if they have children, a fulsome co-parenting plan, right. but uh, emotion just gets in the way. Right. Although no one knows better than me that emotion is a huge part of it, having been through it. Right. So, um, what are your thoughts about that freezing tendency? Right. Talking about a or the theological response. Yeah. How do you yeah. how do you coach or, or assist yeah. women in particular that are experiencing that right. so that they can show up for themselves? Right. Because, like you said. Pretty often, particularly if they're not, if they don't have substantial earning capacity, this will be the most important financial decision in their lives. Right. And it's going to have really big repercussions if they're frozen 
for how their children do. It's a huge problem. It is. It is. And and you are talking about that physiological response. So when we talk about trauma, when we talk about um, comparing to abuse, I mean, these are all forms of trauma. And we can be traumatized. You know, I can feel trauma from the same event that we experienced together. And you can walk away not feeling trauma, right? So it is a very subjective experience of how I viewed that situation and how threat threatening that felt to me. You know, historically, our definition of trauma and PTSD is that it was um, really life-threatening. But this this is is a subjective, you know, experience. I could have felt that that was life-threatening if, if I, you know, don't know where I'm going to eat or how I'm going to pay for things or how I'm going to survive. That can feel life-threatening. So if, if I am going into a trauma response, if I am getting highly activated, um, we also look at this in, in, in sort of our emotions. When our emotions become so activated and so big, we will typically go into a physiologically dysregulating response that might look like fight, that might look like freeze, that might look like flee, right? So we're familiar with some of these states. And you think about when you're you know, faced with a, a bear coming across, you're naturally, your, your physiology is going to kick in and your survival st- instincts are going to take place. The really, really unfortunate thing about trauma is that for a lot of people who have experienced trauma in their life, if I couldn't, if I couldn't flight, if I couldn't fight and I couldn't flee, if those two things didn't work for me, I will freeze. And if that becomes my coping skill, uh, that actually becomes activated pretty easily. So if I'm overwhelmed and dysregulated, I might freeze. What's happening inside of me is really my prefrontal cortex is not aligned anymore. My brain is now going to, you need to survive. We're gonna not, we're not gonna be creative right now. We're not gonna be able to problem solve. We're gonna go into just survival mode. So when that is happening, especially in an office where you need to make important decisions, it is, to say the least, counterproductive, right? And so we're talking about physiology. How do we then calm our physiology? How do we learn to calm our physiology? This is a process, it doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen with practice. And the better we can become um, familiar with our own physiological system, how overwhelmed I'm getting, how stressed I'm getting, where my tipping point is, what what types of things I need to do to stay in my body, keep my prefrontal cortex online, regulate, uh, the better I'm going to be able to tolerate these situations that were otherwise very triggering for me. So it's a process. Um, you know, obviously I'm a fan of therapy and that's what we can work in therapy, but there are other ways of doing this. Um, holistically speaking, getting in touch with my feelings, checking in with myself. When I wake up in the morning, what's going on for me? Um, what am I feeling? Am I already stressed? Am I not stressed? What do I need to do to help myself not get more stressed today? If I wake up and I'm already anxious, what can I do? Can I exercise? Can I meditate? Can I employ mindfulness techniques? Can I sit and calm my physiology down? Will hot shower help? What will help? Right? So if I can start off the day recognizing where my f- physiology is, where my emotions are, really work to get, you know, some of the buzzwords are grounded, right, in my body, that's going to help me. And then the more I work throughout the day, throughout the week in noticing any triggers, noticing things that would derail me, 
and then do my deep breathing, do my mindfulness, do things to keep me centered. Now I'm building the skill of sort of staying in the moment. So just as we learn to survive and and what we need to do to survive in extraordinary circumstances, we also can learn new ways of being connected to ourselves, uh, gaining some control of our physiology, staying grounded, staying mindful, staying in a place that really suits us to make some of these important decisions and to be and to show up, right? To show up as parenting. Um, if I'm triggered easily and my frustration tolerance is real low, it's going to be really hard for me to proactively be the kind of parent I want to be. So even to show up better for my kids means I need to show up better for myself. I need to do what I, you know, I need to take hold of like where I'm at and then how do I manage that? How do I become calmer? How do I build my frustration tolerance? How do I do those things? And and so body, body mind, spirit, I'm a fan of, of utilizing all of those areas, not just one. I hope you're enjoying this conversation on what I meant to say. Produced by my company, Be Better Media. To see the world of why we are striving to share inspired edutainment, I invite you to please check out our website, BeBetterMedia.tv. Here you will find all kinds of great stuff from upcoming new productions to lifestyle products and services I personally use and endorse, to links to great books and other podcasts I love and recommend. Please check us out at BeBetterMedia.tv. That's BeBetterMedia.tv. I love that. You know, I find that, uh, well, I found my meditation practice during my divorce mm -hmm. because I was so dysregulated. So everything that you said really speaks yeah. to me on a personal level. And I've really observed with my clients that if they have a mindfulness practice and some of the things that come to mind is yoga, Tai Chi, you know, taking, having a bath at night as mm -hmm. opposed to heavily drinking. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, all those things facilitate right. them. Ha it's an opportunity to really expand your toolkit. Yes, yes. You know, we want to be really mindful that our toolkit isn't filled with things that distract us and tune us out, right? So, you know, having a couple drinks at night is not the end of the world, but if you're doing that every night, you're actually tuning out and that has negative long-term consequences for you. If you are only doing things, watching TV, scrolling on, on you know, your social media, that actually is a distraction that takes me out of life and sort of occupies my time. Those are not inherently bad things, but if those are the only tools we're doing, we are going to suffer some really unfortunate consequences of that. We are not practicing being in the moment. We are not practicing um, regulating our breath and regulating our heart rate. So then we're surprised when we have a panic attack. Well, you know, part of dealing with panic attacks is really um, getting very good at regulating our systems, right? And so I think we need to be really mindful, like you said, about doing things like yoga, Tai Chi, taking a bath going for a walk, meditating, praying, doing things that help us stay in our here and now and manage it and help us to develop better mindsets to do that, right? Um, giving yourself affirmations. Um, if I'm not giving myself affirmations, it's going to be really hard to get my kids affirmations. If I'm constantly operating in, I'm, I'm, a, I'm fearful, I'm not good enough, the world's out to get me, 
this is going to get communicated to everyone around me, including my kids. So really sort of taking that approach of building your toolkit with things that are keeping you in the here and now and developing skills that you want to have to be your best you, your best parent, and, and to help your kids really be the best version of themselves. And it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning about role modeling. Yes, absolutely. We're showing our children that rather than scrolling through social media, right. you could go together and walk the dogs and right. have a meaningful conversation right? and get some fresh air and sunshine and kind of, I mean, we do learn as we do that, that we do have control over our nervous system. We, do, we can, we yes. don't, we don't have to be reactive. Right. So in the divorce context, you know, my client gets a nasty text from her soon-to-be ex-husband and her head starts spinning around. But she learns that instead she can put the phone down mm -hmm. and walk the dogs mm -hmm. and not deal with right. it immediately. She can pause. Right, pause. I don't have to answer that right away. There's so much literature out there about how to be connected in the here and now going for a walk, you know, they even say, if you're having trouble on a walk, that's not doing, take your shoes off, right? Be barefoot, feel the difference between the concrete and the grass, because that is keeping you here, experiencing our five senses. What do we smell? What do we taste? What do we hear? Um, all of those things, even, you know, the the texture of, of leather versus the texture of the, the cushion, these things get us grounded in here and now and help us really regulate our physiology. So important. How do you um, recommend, and we've kind of talked about this already, but some more specifics about the overwhelm that accompanies divorce. I remember like it was yesterday, standing in my garage in my nightgown. I was a lawyer. I was a corporate litigator, but not a family law attorney. I did not grow up thinking I'd be doing this. It came to me. But in any event, standing there and thinking, I do not know where to start when it became evident that I needed to end my marriage. I don't know whether I should be packing up my house to sell it or whether I should go in and like play with my young children or, and I was on a break at that point and not working, look for a job. I don't know whether I should, um, I, I literally had no idea where to start. And that's why I ended up writing the book to try to create some framework around you don't have to do everything at once. You don't have to sell your house immediately, usually. That's not how it works. Like right. there are other, you know, the first thing you probably need to do, and I talk about this in the book, is get a good therapist. Yeah. Um, but do you have any other specific tips that sort of ties together with all the things we've been talking about? But, but it's such an important thing because if clients come to me and they're overwhelmed, it makes them very hard to work with. Right, right. You know, there's a few things that we've talked about that I think create this perfect storm of everything that lets you standing in the garage in your nightgown thinking, where do I start, right? Usually we've disconnected from some friends. We've disconnected from community. Um, we're feeling very alone. We're feeling disillusioned. Um, we're overwhelmed with the tasks and I wish there was the one size fits all. Do this one thing first. And then the second thing, um, I love that you break things down in your book practically. What I would say is we all operate best in a village. Like no one can do it alone. And so if you're standing there feeling alone, 
that is your first clue that I need to get re-engaged with people who care about me, people who can help me make good decisions, people who love me and, and can support me through this time. Because we can't make all those decisions on our own. There are things that experts are going to give us that are going to be so helpful. So we can't do it alone and we don't need to make those decisions alone. Where, you know, I ask all my clients, regardless of what's going on in their life, who's your village? Who's your support system? Who do you get to rely on? And if you don't have that, that's one of the first things we're going to do. We're going to build that because we all need our village. We were not meant to do everything all alone in isolation. We need our community. And so I, I think that's really where I like to start with people. Um, obviously, I'm looking at symptom reduction and, you know, what's going on and how can I help you? But the, the, the basics is that we, we can't do anything alone. So I, you know, encourage people who are in therapy, this was a great step, right? And, and part of our journey together is going to build up your community that you don't need me anymore, right? I'm here temporarily for you. You need a community that's going to be there long term. And if people might come and go. But this idea of community, I think we've lost that. I think we've lost that in our busy lives and in our busy worlds. And we've lost that with the idea of social media. That's not really your community, right? Your community are the people that when you're standing alone in your garage, you can call somebody and say, I don't know what to do. Can you come over? I need help. And that person shows up for you, right? That's community. And so I, I think we, we start there. I love that. And I'm thinking about how there's some synchronicities and parallels with recovery programs mm -hmm. where they build, uh, they go to meetings, they build a community, right. and that gives them the safe container of support when they have that moment where maybe they're standing wherever they're standing right. and feel like they want to have a drink or they're starting to feel that overwhelm come on. And they have that support system and it's been proven um, mm -hmm. to work. Yeah. And so I think part of what I want to do and why I've had so many different guests on from different different walks of life is to try to build that community for people that are going through divorce because divorce has been treated like it's a dirty word. Right. It leads, you know, our conversation started with broken homes, broken kids. But if you look at the statistics, half of first-time marriages end in divorce, 63% of second marriages end in divorce, financially goes 79% of third marriages end in divorce. So the divorce rate is much higher than 50%. Right. So it's actually the norm. Yeah. And to cre create sort of this, and I think it's starting to change now, we're starting to really see a shift, but for people to be in their nightgown in their garage feeling so alone, is it shouldn't be that way when something is such a, a normal part of, of life. Right. And we need to show up and support one another and, and let people know that they aren't alone. And I think that in doing that, that's one way we can be of assistance to avoid this tendency to be in freeze mode. Right. Which is so counterproductive. And I've seen people just get annihilated financially and otherwise, mm -hmm. children taken away, you know, lose their home and everything else because because they're frozen. Right. Right. You know, there there's so many pieces of that, right? And and I think that even mental health are still a stigma, right? If I need help, somehow I'm not doing it well enough, I'm not strong enough. 
you know, I still hear from people, you know, well, if I, I don't need, I don't need that because I'm strong, right? And somehow if you go get services, you're, you're weak. And so I do think there's, you know, I love the movement to destigmatize mental health, but how we show up for people and how we accept vulnerability and, and even if we show up, right? I, I think we, we have to engage in our communities, whether that's in your recovery community, whether that's in your, you know, physical community. You know, I, I'm curious, always curious, like who knows their neighbors? Many people don't know their neighbors right now, right? And so I really have a heart for people who are feeling isolated for lots of different reasons, whether they're, you know, at a stage in life where they're, they're older and they're alone and they're widowed, whether they're in a stage where they're, you know, coming out of a toxic family and needing to establish their own life and independence from that, um, whether they're, you know, fresh out of divorce and feeling alone. My heart really is for people who need to re-engage back into community and, and, and need to sort of build this community mentality. I think we've lost that over the years for a lot of different reasons. And Again, I, I think tides are changing now and, and we're realizing how important that is um, and how important community friendships, um, our little village is. It's fundamental to us being our best us. It's fundamental to you know us knowing how to be in relationships. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your insights. It's just been so interesting and also hopeful. Good. And, and you've had such good concrete tips for people that are facing some of the issues we've discussed about how to show up for themselves and their children, which is near and dear to my heart. So I really appreciate you joining us today. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Wow. I learned so much and I really appreciate you showing up for us. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm.